Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. From the years 1395 until 1402, Ottoman Sultan Bayezid the Thunderbolt laid siege to Constantinople. But the last fragments of the once mighty Byzantine Empire would survive. Because from the east, a nomadic conqueror known to history as Amir Timur, Temur, Tamerlane, or simply Timur, would put a check to Ottoman power and, in a way, save Constantinople. This Timur was a powerful man who created an empire that would stretch from India to Syria, from the Russian steppe to Arabia. His armies were deemed invincible, his cities the grandest in the world, and he himself remembered as one of the most brutal conquerors who has ever lived. And I want to investigate this all. If this intrigues you, then check out the Timur Podcast, a podcast that covers the life, conquests, and character of Timur. The show can be found in most places you find your history podcasts, or head on over to timurpodcast.com for more information. And with all that said, let's return to the history of Byzantium. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 217, Diverging Paths. Last time, we watched on as the Crusaders left Nicaea and wound their way up onto the Anatolian Plateau. They were immediately ambushed by Kilij Arslan's men, but dug deep to survive the onslaught. Once the Turks had routed, the military balance of power in the region shifted. The nomads' retreat not only allowed the Crusaders a clear path across Anatolia, but it also gave the Byzantines the opportunity to move in on the cities of the west coast. As you may recall, during the civil wars which culminated in Alexius's rise to the throne, the west coast of Anatolia had fallen under Turkic rule. Komnenos's rivals Melissinos and Votaniates had withdrawn Roman troops from Anatolia, leaving these cities in the care of Turkic mercenaries. Naturally, though, when their Byzantine paymasters failed to return, the Turks threw in their lot with the Sultan of Nicaea. Most of the cities of the west coast, Kizikus, Sardis, Ephesus, and many smaller ones in the interior, were now in the hands of the nomads. The biggest thorn in the Roman side, though, was Smyrna, whose emir Chaka had captured many ships from the Aegean fleet. You may remember that back in 1092, the Byzantines had pushed Chaka's fleet away from various islands, but they hadn't destroyed it. The fleet remained in Turkic hands, disrupting communication and trade just 300 miles from the Roman capital. 
As soon as Nicaea fell, Alexius began readying his navy. Then, once the good news from Dorylaeum arrived, it was time to strike. Again, the emperor put his faith in his brother-in-law, John Ducas. John took the fleet straight to Smyrna, with Chaka's daughter, taken prisoner at Nicaea, in tow. She was proof, both that Nicaea had fallen, and that one could trust the Byzantines when they offered terms of surrender. Down at Smyrna, Chaka had apparently fled and was eventually assassinated, but his subordinates were more than ready to make a deal. As at Nicaea, the garrison agreed to hand over the city to the Byzantines in exchange for their lives. The deal was done, and a Byzantine governor and garrison were installed. We get little glimpses into Anatolian life during this campaign. Anna tells us that some Turkic people preferred to stay behind and remain in Smyrna despite the change of regime. One of them was accused of a crime and brought before the new governor, who he thought was about to unjustly execute him. So he grabbed a knife and stabbed the governor. Sadly, this incident led to reprisals against the Turkic population. Ducas moved south down the coast to Ephesus. There his army was met in the field by the Turkic garrison. The Romans would have had superior numbers, yet still suffered some nasty casualties as they took the nomads down. One scholar notes that the garrison would have been safer staying inside the city, but perhaps they were afraid of being locked up with their Roman population after what had happened at Smyrna. The Turks fled the field and headed east towards the plateau. John would slowly follow them. He marched to Sardis, then up the Meander Valley, and took Philadelphia. Neither town offered much resistance, and a garrison and governor were installed. I've put up a map at thehistoryofbyzantium.com so you can follow along. John pursued the Turks all the way on to the plateau and defeated them again. Ducas would capture two local fortresses, paving the way for future Byzantine operations on the plateau, but otherwise left the locals alone. Anna tells us that at the town of Laodicea, the locals surrendered immediately, and that Ducas agreed to treat them as deserters from the enemy. He left them to run their own affairs as he marched back to the coast. Two points arise from this. One is that the Romans were already running out of troops they could spare to garrison small towns. The other is that Anna's phrasing suggests that Laodicea's leading families were recognisably Turkic in origin. Presumably the people living there had abandoned the nomadic life and settled in a farming community and wanted to stay where they were. So by submitting to the Byzantines, i.e. agreeing to pay taxes and cause no trouble, they were left alone. So, the west coast of Anatolia, the lowland areas away from the plateau, were now largely back in Byzantine hands. Alexius would arrive the following summer to reinforce the return of Roman power. During the winter of 1097, the emperor also made some kind of truce with Kilij Arslan and returned the sultan's family to him. This operation is often left out of crusading histories, considered merely a local matter, or even evidence of Byzantine disinterest in the crusade. But the restoration of imperial rule along the coast was vital if Antioch was to be retaken, 
the sea lanes had to be cleared to allow supplies and soldiers to reach Cilicia, including those being brought by Western merchants. Alas, this is where the experience of the two sides truly diverges. While the Byzantines enjoyed a fruitful summer in 1097, the Crusaders suffered bitterly. After resting for several days and burying their dead near Dorylaeum, the host moved forward, led by Tatikios. During the next month, thousands would die, along with many of the animals that had carried them this far. The Crusaders were now crossing the plateau in mid-July. Temperatures over 30 degrees centigrade, 86 Fahrenheit, were the norm. No major rivers greeted them anymore, no lush vegetation. Many would have died anyway, but the casualties began escalating because of the heat, the crude organisation of the army, and the fact that the Turks had begun to strip the path of supplies. Beaten, but not broken, Kilij Arslan had ordered his men to get ahead of the Westerners and make life difficult for them. Crops were taken, animals led away, useful buildings burnt. The Latin chronicles describe an uninhabitable wasteland along much of the road. Thirst really began to take a toll a week or so beyond Dorylaeum. One of our historians describes a scene where a stream is found, and thousands sprint towards it desperate to relieve their suffering, only to drink too much and die soon afterwards. Many were simply not able to cope with the physical demands of the journey and died from related conditions or had to turn back towards an uncertain fate. The most poignant casualties were horses. Under normal conditions, horses need about 36 litres of water a day to survive. Here, in the burning heat, carrying around weapons and bags of grain, they began to wilt. The rich had servants to tend to their mounts, but for the rank and file, this was a nightmare. Their horses were demanding water that they needed for themselves. Thousands of horses perished, and less affluent knights became foot soldiers from now on. Again, the crusaders were fortunate. By the time they reached the other end of the plateau, they would have been quite unable to handle a full nomad army but they'd looked so impressive at Dorylaeum that no one dared mass against them. The route which Tatikios chose has intrigued scholars. The Latin writers only have a hazy sense of where they were, partly because they didn't know Anatolia or the Greek place names, but also because of the huge crusader baggage train which stretched for about 20 miles along the road by one estimate. As another scholar notes, for those travelling at the rear of the column, it probably wasn't clear where they were until they reached Antioch four months later. The traditional route across Anatolia would have taken the Crusaders to Ancyra before moving south through Cappadocia towards Cilicia. But Tatikios led them immediately south instead. They didn't even go towards Amorium, heading instead for a town called, ironically, Antioch in Pisidia. This was in the old Thracision theme, and a route that no imperial army that I can remember ever took. Several modern scholars 
Francopan and Caldellis amongst them, believe that this was done in order to complement the Byzantine operations taking place along the coast. The Turks didn't know that the crusade was headed for Antioch, so by marching directly south, it might have looked like the Westerners were actually going to turn west at any moment and descend on Smyrna itself. This is seen as a cunning move by Alexius, threatening the Turks along the coast with a pincer move and encouraging them to surrender while they still could. I don't see this as a definitive explanation, though. The road to Ancyra would have taken the crusade through the heart of the plateau, leaving both flanks exposed to Turkic attack. Whereas by travelling south and then crossing the plateau's southern rim, they could only be attacked from one side. The big disadvantage of this approach, though, was that it meant crossing arid stretches of land, avoiding certain major rivers. By the time the Crusaders reached Pisidian Antioch, it was already August, and most were sick of Anatolia. Others were just sick. This region was well stocked with provisions and water, yet still Raymond of Toulouse fell ill and didn't recover for two months, while Godfrey of Bouillon was mauled by a bear during a hunt. The host now began to move east and arrived at Iconium in the middle of August. Again, check out the map if you want to see all this. Iconium was a well-fortified Byzantine city. In the past, it was a fallback position for the Anatolikon when dealing with Arab raids. Now it was one of the sultan's cities, and yet the Turkic garrison had fled long before the Latins showed up. The Roman population warmly welcomed them and sold them all the supplies they could. They also informed the crusaders of Kilij Arslan's movements. According to one historian, Arslan had had to lie during his retreat, telling the citizens of Iconium that he had crushed the crusade. His fear, apparently, was that if news got back to the Anatolian Romans that he'd lost, they might eject their garrisons and lock the gates. The crusaders moved on, this time armed with goat skins full of water, just in case. Their next notable stop was at Heraclea, near the Cilician Gates. Turkic troops had at last decided to set an ambush for them, but the scars of Dorylaeum were still fresh. After an initial engagement, the Turks fled. It was now September, and having reached the edge of the plateau, the Crusaders were probably keen to push on into Cilicia, a fertile place, and then straight to Antioch. But that's not what they did. Instead, they trekked north across Cappadocia and then spent another month working their way through the Taurus Mountains before reaching their destination. This diversion is clear evidence of Byzantine control of the mission. And it's difficult to know how angry the rank and file were at being asked to march through even more alien terrain after the ordeal they'd just been through. Alexius's goal was to reconnect with the network of Armenian warlords who still dominated this region. As we've talked about before, the nomads had a direct line from the steppe-like grasslands of Iran through the Armenian mountains onto the Anatolian plateau. They had no particular interest in the neighbouring mountains where former Byzantine clients were able to go on ruling undisturbed. Initially, 
This had allowed the Byzantine general, Philaritos Vrachamios, to control an impressive kingdom. Centred on Antioch, he also controlled Cilicia and neighbouring cities like Melitene and Edessa. But Vrachamios had fallen. The Turks had taken the lowland cities, including Antioch and those in Cilicia, while the cities in the highlands, like Melitene, remained in Armenian hands, with no central authority controlling them. Wisely, these Armenian leaders paid homage to both Baghdad and Constantinople in one form or another. Alexius now wanted the Crusaders to march through the mountains to plug these men back into the imperial system and demonstrate his military reach. This was not entirely self-serving. Alexius knew that Antioch was a very difficult city to besiege. He wanted the local Armenians to commit to the project. They could supply the Crusaders with food and equipment and manpower. Without their help, it might not be possible. The bulk of the Latin force trudged north towards Caesarea, while a small detachment continued on to reconnoitre Cilicia. As you know, Cilicia is a pocket of Mediterranean coastland with nice farms, rivers and cities surrounded by the Taurus and Amanus mountains. It had only fallen to the Turks in the last decade, and the Byzantines may not have known how strong its garrisons were. As we discussed before, the Crusaders were lucky. They got their timing spot on. With the Seljuk world struggling through a series of civil wars, the Cilician garrisons were in no mood to resist. The Latin force was quickly able to capture the key cities of Tarsus, Adana and Mopsuestia. The local population of Romans, Monophysites and Armenians were more than happy to turn on the Turks and aid the Westerners. These easy pickings actually led to squabbles amongst the two Latin commanders, Tancred, Bohemond's nephew, and Baldwin, brother of Godfrey of Bouillon. Both men had plans to stay in the east after the crusade, hence their willingness to volunteer for this mission. Baldwin had more men with him, so Tancred backed down, but it was an early indication of the conflicts which were going to flare up once the host reached Antioch. Meanwhile, the rest of the Crusaders continued to succeed militarily while suffering personally. There was some kind of skirmish with Turkic troops as they reached Caesarea, but again the nomads wilted when they contemplated the size of the crusading army. Then the Latins took their long detour through the Taurus Mountains. They turfed out the few Turkic garrisons in their path and were welcomed by the locals. But they did not enjoy the march. Temperatures could drop significantly at altitude, and quite unused to the narrow mountain roads, many crusaders began to despair. Animals would occasionally lose their footing, tumbling to their deaths, dragging their carts with them. Men began selling their armour and weapons so as not to have to carry them anymore. It was an exhausting and miserable journey. If I was being ludicrously anachronistic and pro-Byzantine, I might say that the Westerners were at last getting acquainted with the very mountains that had shielded their civilization from past storms. But I won't say that. The reality was that such a large army probably shouldn't have made this leg of the journey. But it was clearly felt that to divide their strength would invite disaster. Politically, this tangent was a complete success. 
the Armenians warmly welcomed their fellow Christians and supported their endeavour. If Antioch was back in Byzantine hands, it would protect them from Muslim incursions. It was also in this region that forts were actually taken and garrisoned by Tatikios's men. This included several spots east of Caesarea, obscure forts that we think were Comana or Comania, and a place the Crusaders called Coxon, which may be the ancient fort of Cocussus. The Byzantines were picking inaccessible and highly defensible spots to actually annex. As I mentioned previously, Tatikios only led about 2,000 men. There was no point in garrisoning big cities like Caesarea or Iconium, which would have needed large forces to protect them and could easily be isolated by the Turks. Instead, these forts in the mountains would give Constantinople a presence on the ground again, a few outposts from which to monitor the Crusaders and Armenians and see if they could be used to restore the empire's position. It was around the 20th of October, then, that the Crusaders finally arrived outside Antioch. They had set off from Nicaea 116 days earlier, and it's possible that they had lost as many as half of the 70,000 souls who'd crossed the Bosphorus with them. Not all of them were dead. Some were garrisoning cities behind them, some had headed home but thousands of others had simply died from the traumas of the march. If all this led to Jerusalem, and ultimately to heaven, then I suppose it's worth it, seems to have been the mood. But the Latins were at the end of their tether. Further delays might break their morale and would certainly turn them against the absent Alexius. Next time, the Crusaders settle in for an eight-month siege of Antioch. If they thought deserts and mountains were tough, they were about to be re-educated. I suspect we are in for another epic, extra-long episode to handle this one, which may take me a couple of weeks to put together. While you're waiting, why not go off the beaten track yourselves by checking out the Timor or Timur podcast? Fast forward to the last days of Byzantium and learn about the life of this infamous post-Mongol warlord who ruled a giant empire and founded a dynasty. There's another reason to check out TimurPodcast.com as well. James has created a handy history podcasts map. It's a very cool idea. He has a world map up and has placed markers all over it indicating which podcast covers that area of the globe's history. It's a really fun and useful tool. And, oh, there's the history of Byzantium right on Istanbul. So, he's got my vote. Check out timopodcast.com or search for Timor wherever you get your podcasts. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.